Again, after you've marked hymn number 440, as Brother Harold requested that we do, we'll sing that in just a few moments at the conclusion of our lesson this beautiful Lord's Day morning. May we begin with maybe a refrain or statement that the prophet Nahum pointed to us in Nahum 1 verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. The Lord knoweth them that trust in him. And isn't it amazing how that throughout the word of God we are challenged and always encouraged to draw close and to draw near to him, ever realizing that our sojourn here upon earth is but brief, even at its best, and that we can look forward to that marvelous and eternal abode wherein there's no pain or those things that distract and draw us aside from understanding the goodness and marvelous nature of our loving God. We in the last day or two have embarked upon that season of the year, which perhaps is quite often readily called the holiday season. There is the Thanksgiving holiday in but a mere four weeks or so thereafter, quickly the Christmas holiday. And during that season of the year, it's not unusual for attention or thoughts to turn toward those things quite likely that lift one's eyes above the mundane character of earth and to think about perhaps those things that are more lasting, more eternal, more permanent. I thought that as we looked last Lord's Day morning on the character of thanksgiving using Psalm 116 as our text, today might be a perfect time to perhaps build slightly upon that lesson and turn back the clock to ancient Israel and look at the interesting lesson to be drawn from the manna. Have you ever thought about what it was like? For ancient Israel to wander for 40 years through that wilderness, there were no gardens to pick beans and potatoes. There were no stores like Kroger nearby where you could purchase the food necessities of the day. What is it that sustained them? And what's more, what lessons did God intend Israel to learn, not only by the character of that manna, but lessons that they should take with them many, many years later as they inhabited the promised land and were to become a people of God's own proud possession. Might I submit to you that not only was the manna to provide for their physical necessities, it had also another purpose, another reason for its usage. This morning, let us look at the manna. Not so much from the perspective of simply providing necessity daily food, but another kind of provision. God's provision of daily Israel. Well, that said, let's begin our lesson with some introductory thoughts and remarks. And I would ask that you think with me about the character of what Israel had to learn in contrast to not only what their tendency was, but what mine and yours may well be too. What about this issue of self-reliance? To be so concerned and so confident that you and I can provide our way that we have no particular need, if you will, of the blessing and of the specific granting of the goodness of God. After all, Israel could very well find themselves in that predicament. They may well have had that same mentality. Not only they, but you and I too. In fact, that's one of the most disastrous attitudes that you and I can have. To think that we each day make our way separate and apart from the blessing of God, separate and apart from His provision, separate and apart from the character of all that He makes available to us. And once we begin to think like that, once we in fact allow that to creep into our mentality, it is such that it not only affects that specific attitude in life, but almost all others. 
for that reason, it would do us well to think about first Israel. We read a moment ago from Exodus 16. As we look at some of the verses surrounding it, let's remember where Israel was when that lesson was told to them. As early as Exodus 3, verse number 8, in that fiery beauty of the burning bush, God expressly revealed to that man named Moses the fact that you go and bring my people out of Egypt to the land of promise. God on that occasion even informed them of their destination. You see, it wasn't just enough that they know that they were being removed from Egypt. God wanted them to know you have a destiny. You have a de destined place prepared by me for you, and I'm going to lead you there. In the years that followed, we well remember that the journey wasn't always a bed of roses, as the old saying goes sometimes. In fact, I've listed just a few of the hardships, trials, and difficulties that came their way. All of this is going to lead us in just a moment to the manna, but recall this with me. Isn't it true, for instance, in Exodus 15:22, they had only been gone from Egypt at that point about a month and a half. And yet they came out of there and they arrived at a location in which there was no water. Scarcity of water. The very scene there unfolded before us in such a way that in Numbers 20, verse 5, as well as Numbers 33, 14, on several stops throughout the course of their journey, they arrived at locations in which there was either none or insufficient quantity of water. We each understand the necessity of water. You and I can live without food far longer than we can without water. A few days without water and you and I will perish. Can you imagine then the anxiety and the panic that rested in the mind of those Israelites when they came to a location and there was no water. On one occasion in Exodus 15, God providentially instructed a particular tree to be cast into a lake and it turned that water into something that was potable. That is, it was drinkable and usable. Later on, God even had Moses supposedly to speak to a rock and he did a little bit more than that. And from a solid rock, water came forth. God met their needs, and he did so on those necessary occasions. But consider food. There were times that food was kind of scarce as well. Notice with me in Exodus 16.3, as well as Numbers chapter 11, the people came to a particular location in a particular place. And on that occasion, they proceeded to chastise Moses. Where have you brought us out of Egypt? There we had melons and onions and leeks, and we had bread to the full. You've brought us out here to die in this wilderness with no food. Moses became somewhat upset at the thought of their complaining and their grumbling. But we should realize, would you and I be any different? When a few days without food or water comes our way, would you and I not in fact react with tremendous and powerful character in terms of argumentation, in terms of desire, in terms of in fact fleeing after and determining whatever is necessary to get what we want. We may have seen movies on television or maybe even read about it on the news. In some of these far places, these countries that are beset by famine, what happens when a plane, for instance, from our country brings in food, the people flock around it and police are necessary to ration it. For if not, those who are stronger will take almost all of it and leave none for those others. 
You see, we understand that food and water are things that we need, but yet the hardships went deeper than that. In Numbers 2, verse 32, consider the number of people who had to be supplied. We're told in that passage that there were 603,550 fighting men of Israel. That's men 20 years of old and upward, and thus that does not count the children nor the women, and furthermore it does not count the tribe of Levi. So by the time all those are counted, we may well be into the 2 to 3 million range easily. That many people, in fact, all desirous of food and water could easily result in a tumult, a panic, pandemonium. And as such, they may well kill, in many cases, one the other to get the food. How did God provide for their needs? Through 40 years, how did he provide for these physical necessities that they so much were in need of? And I submit to you that God's solution for him was easy. For you and me, consider preparing enough food to feed two million people every day, three meals. That's no small amount of food. I submit to you that the best soup kitchen in Nashville would flounder trying to provide that much food. The best food bank in Nashville would crumble under the load of trying to provide three meals a day for two million people. And yet our God did it. And not only did he do it, he did it successfully and he did it well. Let us turn back to Exodus 16 and notice one of the key elements of God's provision as he met the needs of this large multitude of people. Let me begin reading, if you would, in verse number 3. Exodus 16, verse number 3. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. Consider this with me. In God's miraculous and powerful means of providing for them, one of the first things we notice is God said, I will provide you bread. And in this verse and those that follow, God even said, I will rain bread from heaven. How often have been the cases you and I have walked out on the back porch and just held out our pot and caught the food that we were going to eat? I have never done that. I suspect you haven't either. And yet, consider the various incidents that are revealed in this chapter. Rain bread from heaven. Well, you and I are told that this large multitude were able to go out and pick up bread off the ground. When the dew of the morning evaporated, when the dew of the early morning went away, behind there on the ground was left this small round thing. And that's the King James way it's described. I've listed some of the things we know about manna. It appeared again on that occasion after the dew left. But not only that, it was thin and it was small. That round thing apparently was such that it had a texture. It had a scaly surface to it. As the children of Israel were able to just go and pick it up, this manna, in fact, tells us that they were somewhat confused about what it was at first. In fact, in the Hebrew, that word means, what's it? When they walked out that first morning and saw it, what is it? 
that means manna. That phrase is where it got its name. And thus, as they looked upon that manna and gathered it, they were able to gather it in large amounts or in small amounts, as the case may be. You'll notice that it was white in color according to verses 23 and following in this chapter. And furthermore, it was like coriander seed. We know from our study and research that that kind of a plant was a somewhat cousin to our carrot, but it was much, much larger in terms of the plant. And they could go and it had grayish seeds on it. And thus the texture may have been somewhat like the seeds of that coriander plant. But perhaps lastly, what did manna taste like? If you and I had to eat this three times a day for 40 years, you might think we'd get tired of it. We are told in the scriptures that this tasted like wafers made with honey. Wasn't God good and gracious to provide them with something that maybe tasted like a graham cracker? For after all, wafers made with honey. For 40 years, this was the principal staple of what Israel ate. For 40 years, it sustained them through the wilderness, even when they came to fight the various peoples of the land, even when they perhaps trudged into the various difficult places, the manna was still there. They were able to gather it. As they gathered that manna, might I submit to you, again, it met their physical needs, but it taught them an eternal lesson. It's a lesson that on occasion they forgot. But it's a lesson that you and I should look back upon and learn even today. Notice again with me in Exodus 16.4, there's a little statement made in that text. I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them. That I may prove them. In what way did God prove Israel? In what way did, in fact, by the manna, did he prove them? In the Hebrew text, that phrase literally means day by day to test them. Day by day to test them. What was the test that God administered to Israel? And did they pass it? As we'll see in just a moment, they did for a while. But it wasn't such that they continually passed it. And man, I submit you and I fall into the same problem. We're guilty of making the same kind of mistakes that they did. Think with me a little bit more carefully about God's proving of Israel. I've listed some thoughts on that screen there. Again, from Exodus 16, verse number 4. The ending of that verse indicates that the testing was so that to determine whether they would walk in his law or not. Would they walk in that faithful, God-given, merciful law, or would they choose to walk in their own way and thus refuse to walk in God's path? That fundamental description is no different than that which you and I appreciate even till this day. I've listed some of the things that we all should remember when we consider the manna. We have maybe often thought about what it would have been like to walk out of the house or the tent in the morning and just pick it up off the ground. But there were some other features about that manna that would perhaps rest upon my mind and yours as being difficult. Consider these with me. The Bible tells us in Exodus 16 that that manna was provided six days a week, not seven. It was only provided six days out of every week. And furthermore, it was an ample supply. The given individual of a family was to go out and gather enough for himself and perhaps his family. There was no need. In fact, it was not wise to gather more than you needed. 
you gathered only what you needed for that day. That's interesting, isn't it? Israel was to learn a fundamental lesson that day by day you rely on God. You don't gather enough on Monday to take care of Tuesday. You gather enough for Monday to take care of Monday. In fact, not only that, we notice that on one day, what you and I would recognize as Friday, the sixth day of the week, they were to gather twice as much as they had on any of the other previous days of that week. And the reason God said is simple. Tomorrow morning there won't be any. Think about two million people again getting up on that morning, wanting to find it, but on that Sabbath morning there wasn't any. Think about the panic and pandemonium that could result. But God frankly told them, you must make ready on Friday. You gather twice as much and you make adequate preparation. Tomorrow there will not be any. They were again to learn about the statements of God's provision. Just as surely as they could count on ample supply every day, on Friday there would be ample supply for two days. We even read in the scriptures of how that some did not take God at his word. They got up on the Sabbath and hoped to find some, and God got angry. They didn't listen to what he said. But yet consider a third point. The manna could not be stored. I suspect for you and me at this particular instant in time, that would be one of the most difficult things to overcome. Almost the first tendency that you and I would think of on Monday is to go out and gather enough to last all week. In fact, we were taught that quite often as children work. Well, you be thrifty, you prepare, you make ready, for you don't know what may happen tomorrow. On this occasion, they couldn't go out and gather enough to last three or four days. Why not? Suppose an industrious person went out on Tuesday and decided, well, I'll just gather enough of this manna to last me today and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and so I won't have to gather any of those days. Or what if I take some pouches and I store it away to last me a few months? This chapter tells us that couldn't happen. If the manna was stored past one day, at least for the first days of the week, Monday through Friday, if it was stored, it began to stink and it bred worms. You couldn't store the manna. Only on Friday could you gather enough to last two days. All the other days you could only gather enough for that one day. We begin to notice again Israel had to learn the very basic lesson. Every day is a gift from God and every day's provision is to be appreciated and understood that day. The storing up of the manna just couldn't be done. But not only that, what else was true about this manna? It's also the case that it didn't last all day long. One had to appreciate that when that dew left and the manna was there, when the heat of the day came, the manna melted. Again, Exodus 16 tells us that. And thus the children of Israel had to be busily ready and able to accumulate it and gather it while the provision of God was available. Once the heat of the day had come, there would be no more manna that day. Isn't it then amazing isn't it truly fascinating and intriguing to consider the fact this manna taught them moment by moment daily understanding of God's provision and by it they would be proved whether or not they would trust Him. Would they trust in themselves or would they trust in God? On more than one occasion, 
we understand that they chose to trust in themselves. Perhaps these things, as we consider proving, let's apply them to ourselves. What about you and me in 21st century America? So many centuries removed from the time of the manna in the wilderness. Are there lessons from this that challenge you and me to this day? Not only are there, there are many of them. Just look with me at a few of the lessons you and I might extract from this, this study. You and I know from the prescriptions of the Holy Bible, we live in a day and in an age in which men often choose to elevate their thinking above that of God, and they furthermore think that they are responsible for their own way and that they provide all that they have. We are told from cover to cover in the Bible that that isn't so. You and I may enjoy the blessing of labor and money and possessions, but ultimately, where do they arrive from? What is the source of them? In fact, consider James's statement in James 4, verse 13. Maybe it's one that you've often reflected upon. Go to now, you that say, today or tomorrow we will go into a city and there continue a year and buy and sell and get gain. For whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even as a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. And then verse 15, So then ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we will do this or that. If the Lord will. Do you and I then understand the daily reliance upon the blessing of God? Do we appreciate the daily understanding of His provision? It is such that each morning when you and I arise... And each day as we proceed through the blessings of it, be they the food that's on our table, be they the shelter that's over our head, be they the very character of all that we are, it is a blessing and a daily gift from God. James chastised in that text we just read and presented an overwhelming thought to those of his day who seemed to go about their daily walk of life and never think about God. He said, you ought not do that. If the Lord will, we will do this or that. Do you and I include God in our daily plans? Do we in fact strive to accomplish His will and His work in our life? The manna was supposed to prove Israel whether or not they would follow His will with regard to that manna. Would they gather it as they should? Again, many times they didn't. They tried to gather too much and store it and it would breed worms and stink. Or they tried to go out and gather it on the Sabbath when there wasn't any. Will you and I trust God daily and appreciate His blessing in our life? Consider another one. In Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25, our blessed Savior there spoke about the character of maybe a passage that's already come to your mind. I would ask that you read with me beginning in verse 25 of that Sermon on the Mount chapter in the Bible. We'll read through verse 34. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Listen to how Jesus described the same provision of God. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. 
They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like unto one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Question. Is the promise that God has made available to you and me any different fundamentally than what it was to Israel? He gave them manna for 40 years every day. Has he in these passages promised to meet the needs of me and you in regard to food and clothing and shelter? He said he would. Can we not then see that you and I may well be tested on a daily basis the same way Israel was? A fundamental stand. Will we stand with God and trust his word, understanding that he will daily provide? Or do we try to lift the mantra and the yoke ourselves, thinking we can do it all, when all the while we are destined to fall short, if not in this life, certainly in the day of judgment? Jesus there said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. That's the promise of the Son of God himself, God's bountiful provision. During this season of the year, when often many will now turn their attention with thanksgiving past to the birth of the Lord, many will express a character of thanksgiving relative to his birth, relative to his life, relative to his death, and relative to the benefit thereof. May we understand that spiritually we owe all to him. He said, I am the way the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. And thus, whether it be the spiritual character or the physical blessings, we have to rely upon God. It reminds us of Jabez's famous statement in 1 Chronicles 4, verse 10, where he said, Oh, that thou would bless me and enlarge my coast, and that thy hand would be with me, that no evil may come upon me. Text says God heard his request and granted it. Jabez understood that he had to rely upon God. He could not enlarge his own coast. He could not, in fact, desire and reach the accomplishment of it himself. We live in a life where you and I become strong when we rely upon his strength, not when we try to be the strong ones ourselves. Didn't Paul make that statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? When there he said, When I am weak, then am I strong. The greatest strength that you and I will ever enjoy in life is the same strength that comes when Israel was proven true when they did trust God, when they did trust in His daily provision and relied completely upon it. When they tried to go it alone, they were beaten in battle, they found themselves scarce of food and water, and they found themselves terribly oppressed by the peoples of the land. But as long as God was with them, no enemy could defeat them. No problem could beset them over which they could not meet with God's handling of it. Today, the same principles and promises, in fact, come to you and me. Might I submit to you, when you and I trust in God's provision, 
When you and I realize that the loads of life He can handle, but we can't. We aren't that strong. We are not those who are omnipotent like He is. What a challenge, but also what a blessing. The manna, God's daily provision. May we conclude and summarize with some of the following thoughts. May I submit to you that Israel, in her better moments, did learn to daily trust in God. Never did she take God for granted in her better moments. Never did she strive to go without His aid in her better moments. On certain occasions, she would even take that Ark of the Covenant into battle with her, as she did, for instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. But might we also know, it's not an outward show either. It has to come from the heart, if the Lord will. Is it the Lord's will then for you and me that we turn to Him daily? Absolutely. And we do gravely err when we fail to do that. Each day is a precious gift from Him. Some of the other thoughts I've listed in summary, as God met their physical needs, He will meet ours. Certainly the things that we've said today, that does not mean that we aren't to work. It doesn't mean that we're not to hold a job. But it means the principal emphasis in life should not be on those things, for God said, I will provide that. You follow me first. You, in fact, devote your attention and time and your efforts and your utmost trust and confidence in me. We begin the lesson today by noting Nahum 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. But notice how the verse ends. Not only a stronghold in the day of trouble, it says, He knoweth them that trust in Him. God knows those that trust in Him. Have you placed your confidence and your trust in Him? It may well be you and I don't go out and gather manna on the ground six days every week. But all the things physically we have are due to Him. All the blessings we enjoy are from His bountiful hand. Did not James also say in the opening chapter of that same book, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James 1, verse 17. Today, may we each then bountifully give thanks unto God for all His provision. More significantly for the moment, what about His spiritual provision? All blessings are in Christ spiritually. Ephesians 1, verse 3. There is no spiritual blessing that can be had outside Jesus Christ. Thus, are you in Christ? For if you're not, you do not have access to those blessings. And furthermore, if I'm outside that, then neither do I. Thankfully, we are given the understanding in the New Testament of how we enter Christ, how we form that covenant relationship. Jesus said in John 8, verses 21 to 24, Except you believe in me, you shall die in your sins. And later in Mark 16, verse 16, he affirmed, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Have you believed then in the Lord? Notice, you aren't saved at the point of belief, but that's a necessary part in the salvation process. You must also repent of the sins in your life. Sins are those things that are transgressions of God's will, 1 John 3, 4. That, those things that we do or fail to do that violate His will. We must repent of them, that is, change our mind and determine to do them no more. That's simply the act of repentance. Notice that Peter commanded that in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you. 
Thus, upon belief and upon repentance, the next act that we read about in the New Testament involves confession. A public statement in the hearing of others that we believe with all our heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The eunuch made that confession in Acts 8.37. It's referenced in other places as well. For instance, in 1 John 4.15. Finally, we then have reached that pinnacle in life where we've climbed the steps of belief, repentance, and confession. All that's left is to wash those sins away. We do that in baptism, or rather, Christ does that through baptism. In that act, we are buried in water, and His blood washes our sins away. The act is in many ways a simple one, but it's a reenactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We rise from that watery grave of baptism, a new creature. All things, all things are passed away. All things are become new. Have you done that in your life? Have you known that blessing and thus the provision that comes with it? If you haven't, let today be the day, this 26th day of November 2006. If you have become a Christian, though, at some point in your life, but you haven't maintained a daily correspondence, you haven't maintained a daily trusting in God, come back to that first element of trust today. We'd be happy to pray for you and with you. If any of that's the need of your life, let us know that even now while together we stand and while we sing.